G'day, my name is Jeff. It's my privilege to look with you at Daniel chapters 4 and 5 today. A very long passage. I'm going to read large chunks of it, so can I encourage you to have a Bible open uh, to Daniel chapter 4. And we're going to think about these two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, and the lesson that they learnt from God. Let's ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, as we look at uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and the, the tough lesson that they learned about how you're in control, we pray that you will help us to understand your word and you'll humble us before you. And uh, we pray that we might respond rightly, knowing that you are the king. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard the term, the illusion of control? The illusion of control. It was coined by um, Harvard psychologist Ellen Langer. She talked about it in a 1975 article in the magazine Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Uh, the illusion of control is defined in this way. The illusion of control is the tendency for people to believe that they have more control over things than they really do. This leads us to overestimate our odds of succeeding or getting a positive outcome. Of course, it's part of the key of poker machines and why they work. Uh, overestimate our odds of succeeding or getting a positive outcome and to invent explanations linking our behaviour to some result. Okay, we think we've got more control than we do, so we link things that we do to a result, even though there's no link. Let me give you a couple of examples of the illusion of control. I know a man who uh, often goes to see his football team play, and he always wears his lucky jumper. Now, in his mind, he believes that when he wears the jumper, that's going to help his team to win. He's not even playing in the game. Okay? <laughs> But he somehow believes that his lucky, lucky jumper will have control over the outcome. I should say that every game that I've been to in my latest jumper, the Eels have won. But uh, <laughs> the illusion of control. Well, here's another example. In 1990, the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed into law. Now, the, law, the new law required that uh, lift doors remain open for long enough so that people with crutches or a cane or a wheelchair can safely get on board. And so lift operators, they had to disable, you know, the closed door button? They had to disable them on all lifts. But lift companies kept making the lift doors with the closed, button door, with the closed door button. Why? One article puts it this way. The closed door buttons in elevators in New York are placebos. They don't actually do anything. However, because they make people feel like they can influence things around them, they remain. People like to have a button to press. And you see people do it, don't you? Over and over and over again. You know, if you press the button on the lights once, it's heard you, okay? Doesn't matter how often you press it, it won't speed up the lights at all. Makes no difference. But why do they want to keep the button? It gives you the illusion of control. Now, maybe you're too smart to think that you can control a football game by wearing a lucky jumper. But friends, I suspect that there are ways that all of us fall for the illusion of control. We look at our lives. We look at our successes, we look at our achievements, and we don't thank our parents or where we were born or when we were born or the genes that we were given or the education that we were given or all the opportunities that we had. We, and we don't thank God, no, no. We look at our achievements, we look at our successes, and we think, haven't I done well? It's a good thing I'm so smart. It's a good thing I'm such a hard worker. It's a good thing I studied so diligently. 
It's a good thing I'm not like all those lazy, incompetent people out there who don't have a nice life like mine. We take credit for our lives, we take credit for our successes, but I wonder, do we have as much control over our lives as we think? Or are we perhaps suffering from the illusion of control? Well, Daniel chapter 4, we again meet King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. Uh, the Babylonian Empire is an empire that covered much of the known world. He's basically the king of the world, this guy. He is an extraordinarily successful man, probably the most successful, most wealthy, most powerful person in the history of the world up until this point. That's Nebuchadnezzar. But God has a lesson for King Nebuchadnezzar, a lesson that he has to learn the hard way. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, calls in all his magicians and astrologers, help me interpret the dream, they can't help. And so he calls in Daniel and he tells Daniel the dream. Pick it up with me, uh, chapter 4 and verse 10. Chapter 4 of Daniel and verse 10. So Nebuchadnezzar is speaking and here in verse 10 he says, uh, these are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was, was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict. So that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, can you please interpret this dream for me? And he does, but it's not good news. And so Daniel warns Nebuchadnezzar, you need to realise, Nebuchadnezzar, you're not the king of the world. God is the king of the world. God is the one who's in control. You need to humble yourself. You need to acknowledge that God is boss. You need to turn from your arrogance. You need to turn from your sin. You need to realise God is the one in control. Halfway through verse 19, Belteshazzar, remember that's, uh, that's Daniel's Babylonian name here in verse 19. Belteshazzar answered, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your Majesty, you are that tree. You've become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. 
Your Majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, Your Majesty. And this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. It's a clear warning. Nebuchadnezzar's been warned. But he doesn't listen. Verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said... Have you ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? You ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? Yeah? No? Yes? It's one of the seven great wonders of the ancient world, apparently. King Nebuchadnezzar grew them. <laughs> he built them. He looks out over his palace, looks out over his garden, verse 30, and he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Tough lesson. Tough lesson. But Nebuchadnezzar finally learns it. Verse 34. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is restored to his position but he's learnt humility before God. Now he humbly acknowledges the truth. It's God who's in control. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And listen to this. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble Well, that's Nebuchadnezzar learned his lesson. 
chapter 4. Chapter 5, though, we meet Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, a new king. His name is Belshazzar. Now, sadly, even though he knows the story of what happened to his granddad, Belshazzar has not learnt the lesson. Uh, Belshazzar believes that he's in control of his life, that he's in control of his empire. He didn't even earn it, like King Nebuchadnezzar, he inherited it, but he reckons he's in control of the whole thing. He holds a big party. He, he takes articles from the, uh, that have been taken from the Temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, and, and then he uses them as if he's in control of them. And he praises his idols as if he and his gods are stronger than God. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Chapter 5 and verse 1, King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, I know it says father, but if you notice, can you see the footnote there? Jump down to the bottom page, you can see father means, it's not literal father, it's forefather. As I say, historically, in fact, Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of Belshazzar. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had uh, still there in verse uh, 2, Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Have you ever heard the saying, the writing is on the wall? The writing is on the wall. Yeah? No? Yeah. It's a common saying, isn't it? It means, what does it mean? It means um, that's the end. You're busted. <laughs> okay. That's the end. Destruction is coming. Something like that. The writing is on the wall. Well, here's the original version of the writing on the wall. It's, here's where the saying comes from. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. Remember, we're talking about the king of the world, the most powerful person in the entire world. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. Belshazzar gathers his advisors. and says, please tell me what this means. They can't do it or they won't do it. And then his mum, the queen, who was King Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, she says, don't forget about Daniel. Ask Daniel. Daniel's brought in and he tells Belshazzar what's happening. He says, you saw what happened to your grandfather. You should have learnt from his mistake, but you haven't. You're arrogant. You're proud. You've set yourself up against God as if you're in control instead of God. You're in trouble. Pick it up in verse 18. Verse 18. Your Majesty. The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. Those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the most high is sovereign over all the kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, 
you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But listen to this. But you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And so Daniel interprets the writing. It says, mene, mene, tekel, pasin, which are coins. It's like um, five cents, five cents, ten cents, fifty cents, something like that. Uh, but also they've got meanings. The word mene means numbered. Uh, the word tekel means weighed. And the word pasin means divided. Uh, put it together, it's a message. It's a message that spells doom for proud Belshazzar, verse 25. Uh, 26, sorry, 26. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And that's it for Belshazzar. And that's it for the Babylonian Empire that has ruled the world for something like 70 years. What was at the time the greatest empire that the world had ever seen in all of its history is conquered in one night. In one night, God hands them over to the Medes and Persians. Verse 30, have a listen to how it's put. Verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. That took what? Five seconds to read. I've just described there perhaps the greatest change of human power in history up until that time. From the Babylonians to the Medes and Persians. But it sounds like nothing when you read it, doesn't it? It's deliberate, isn't it? One night, one sentence. Why? Because for God it is nothing. Bye-bye, Babylon. Hello, Persia. Okay, can you see what's here in chapters uh, 4 and 5 of Daniel? Then they're pretty powerful chapters, aren't they? Two kings. Two kings. First, Nebuchadnezzar. Proud, arrogant Nebuchadnezzar. He learns the hard way. God is the one who is in control. God humbles him. And then Belshazzar, who should have known better, should have seen what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, but instead he sets himself up against God. And so the writing is on the wall for him and for the whole Babylonian empire. All right. All right, before we think about applying the passage to ourselves, let's think about what this passage would have meant for its original readers. Remember the original readers? We're talking about Jewish people. It's a little while after Daniel. We're in the Medo-Persian Empire now, perhaps, or maybe even the Greek Empire. These Jews, they're back in the land, but they're still under foreign powers. And the question they're asking themselves is, has God been defeated? Are the Persians stronger than God? Or maybe are the Greeks stronger than God? Has God lost control? Has God been defeated by these foreign powers? Well, like the rest of the book of Daniel, this, these chapters powerfully answer their question, don't they? Yeah, God's in control. Over and over again, we saw verses like this, chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. The Most High God 
is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. That would have been a message of comfort for the Jews, don't you reckon? And a message of hope as they waited for God to keep his promise to raise up a son of David as the eternal king of his kingdom. Would have been a message of comfort and hope for the Jews. And friends, for us as Christians who know how God's promise is fulfilled, should be even more of a message of comfort for us. God has appointed Jesus as the eternal king of this world. God has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. God is in control and the day is coming when everyone will see that Jesus is king. Every knee will bow to him. Friends, there's no need to panic. There's no need to despair. It might seem like the world is spiralling out of control. It might seem like Australia is going totally loopy as everyone walks around in rainbows and purple. We might feel overwhelmed as our culture increasingly ignores and rejects God and his ways. But these chapters and the whole book of Daniel remind us it's okay. It's okay. God has it in hand. I think these chapters should be a comfort for us. But that's the whole book of Daniel. And I reckon these two chapters in particular also have quite a challenge for people like you and me. That's what I want us to focus on then for application. It's a challenge for us when, like Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar, we start to imagine that we have things under control. And we start to take credit for all our our lives. Do you ever find yourself like Nebuchadnezzar looking out over your life and thinking, maybe as you look out over the hanging garden of Kilara. Or, uh, <laughs> chapter 4, verse 30. Do you ever find yourself looking over your life and thinking, chapter 4, verse 30, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Is this not the great career that I have built after all my hard study and work and diligence? Is this not the great share portfolio that I have bought with my hard-earned money? Is this not the great family that I have created with my great virility? (laughs) Is this not the beautiful house and garden that I have built? Is this not the congregation that I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's an easy trap to fall into, isn't it? It's an easy trap for people who seem to have life under control. It's an easy trap for people who get what they want. It's an easy trap for people who have plenty of money and a secure job. It's an easy trap for successful people. But friends, our perception that we have life under control, our perception that we're the masters of our own destiny, the kings of our own lives, it's an illusion. Our perception that we've built our lives and our successes because we are better, smarter, hardworking, it's an illusion. It's not reality. It's no more true than the idea that we helped our team win by wearing our lucky jumper. We're suffering from the illusion of control. 
And friends, the big problem is, the big problem is not just that it's wrong. The big problem is this. This is pretty serious. The big problem is that God hates it. God hates the pride, the self-congratulation of people who think they have life under control. God hates the arrogance of people who take credit for themselves and look down on the less successful. And God hates the sin that powerful, successful people think they can get away with and often do get away with in this life. Uh, Way back, even before Israel got into the promised land, God warned them about this. He warned them, this is the sort of thing that will get you chucked out of the land and thrown into exile in Babylon in the first place. Have a look at this section from uh, the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land where bread will not be scarce and you'll lack nothing. When you've eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you'll forget the Lord your God. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it's he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. If you ever forget the Lord your God, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. God hates it. Why? Well, not just because the illusion of control is an illusion, not just because it's false, but because we are taking the credit that belongs to him for ourselves. You ever had that happen? Yeah, you work really hard, you do something really, you come up with a great idea or you do some great project or something like that, you give it to your manager and the manager takes it to the board and says, look what I did. They've taken credit for what you did. You ever had it happen to you? I have, I didn't like it. What makes God angry as well? Our illusion of control makes God angry. So how do we dispel the illusion? How do we, how do we stop with this illusion of control? I've got a couple of things to say that it's very obvious. You already know them, but I still think they're important to remember. Firstly, we need, we need to keep coming back to God's word, don't we? Day by day, week by week, let God's word be a reality check for us. Uh, friends, I've got a memory verse for you. Chapter 5 and verse 23. I reckon this is so powerful. It's come up here as well. Here's a verse to memorise. This is what God says to Belshazzar. You did not honour, and particularly this bit I reckon we should memorise, the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? God holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Friends, that's reality. That's reality. Your next breath is a gift of God to you. Take it. Now say, thank you, God, that you gave me that breath. Our next breath is in God's hands, let alone all the accomplishments that we think we're we're so proud of. Where we were born, when we were born in history, our parents, our genes, our education, our opportunities, our health, our sanity, our everything, it is all God's good gift. He should get the credit for it. We're not in control and it's not right for us to take the credit as if we are. 
We need to let God's word change our thinking and bring it into line with reality. Keep coming back to God's word. And it's the second thing, and again, it's very obvious, but it's, friends, it's a good thing to have some Daniels in our lives. Some people who will tell us the truth, who remind us that we're not as smart as we think we are. People who warn us about our pride and our illusion of control. Uh, the other day I was listening to a talk by Presbyterian Minister Gary Miller. I think probably a lot, a lot of the guys will know him. He spoke for our men's conference a few years ago, Gary Miller. And he, uh, Gary Miller was giving this talk about, um, about why so many successful ministers, ministers of large churches, keep falling into sin. And it's a long list. I mean, names that you would know, Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, Mark Driscoll, a long, long list of successful ministers who fall into sin and stuff everything up. Well, Miller says, a big part of the problem is that successful ministers surround themselves with people who tell them how good they are. They isolate anybody who tells them when they're wrong and when they're being an idiot, and they just bring around the people who'll say how great they are. And then Miller says this. He says, Adulation, respect and relentless encouragement are very dangerous things. Do you get it? I'll say it again. Adulation... Respect and relentless encouragement are very dangerous things. Friend, the more successful you are, the more likely you are to surround yourself with sycophants. You know, you know what a sycophant is? Someone who's always trying to suck up to you. The more successful you are, the more people will tell you how wonderful you are, how smart you are, how much you deserve your success, how much they respect you, how much they admire you. And the big danger is you'll start to believe them. And you'll stop listening to people who tell you the truth. It's a good thing to have some Daniels in your life. People who will pop the balloon, take you down a step, remind you that everything you have is a gift from God, remind you that you are no better than anyone else, remind you that your success must never excuse sin. It's no reason for you to be arrogant or grumpy or anything else. It's good to have people. These are the people we should seek out. Their input is something we should humbly value, the people who will remind us of the illusion of control. Friends, it is an illusion, it's not reality, and it's dangerous, and it makes God angry, the illusion of control. So can I encourage you, let God's word dispel your illusion. Listen to people who dispel the illusion. Turn from our arrogant self-congratulation. Instead, cultivate a humble, thankful attitude before God, day by day, come before God. Not like the Pharisee, I thank you that I'm so much better than everybody else, but no, 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 I'm a sinner, like the tax collector, thank you so much. Your extraordinary mercy to me. Friends, we've got to honour the God who holds in his hand our life and all our ways. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that every breath we have comes to us from you. Where we were born, when we were born, our parents, our genes, our health, our sanity, everything we have is a gift to us from you. We're so sorry that we would dare to take the credit where you deserve the credit. Father, please humble us before you. Help us to, to know 
that you're in control, comfort us with the fact that you're in control, but also help us to, uh, to turn from our arrogance and self-congratulation and help us to give you the thanks and praise that you deserve. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.